As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Mark Bigney, and I am here to talk to you about board games. Walker. Shocker. How are you doing today? Fantastic. What would you like to talk about, Walker? Let's talk about uh, the games we played this week. Okay. Only if we then get to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and if we then follow it up with the feature game of the week. I think we should do Flamecraft. Should we? Yeah. Mm. All right. We'll do Flamecraft. So... On that topic, what did you play last week, Walker? Mark, I got to show you a very interesting game called Keep the Heroes Out. I guess this is going to be the adorable show, because this game is adorable. Any show with you, Walker, is the adorable show. Oh, my God. This game, art on the cards is great. You see how he treats me, listeners? The meeples We've been together for years, and he reacts this way. (laughs) And and it's the type of game I'm going to be talking about uh, Tendaya soon. It's the same sort of feel, this sort of... Computer sort of follow the diagram and know what's going to happen. And this has a bit on the lighter side because the randomness of the cards sort of takes away. So you can't really tell where they're going to come out, but you know what they're going to do and you know, you know, how to sort of get in their way. And it, it runs fairly smoothly. You know, you, you get your monsters and you sort of block interests. You put out traps, you block them with, you know, troops, I guess you could say. And then. And then in come the heroes, and you do your best you can. I'd say that Keep the Heroes Out is one of those games that gets by on charm. It's not objectionable by any stretch of the imagination, but in many ways, once you start scrutinizing what's going on, there are a lot of things that you can niggle at and pick with. And if it didn't have those incredibly charming and cute meeples, think in the same style as Root's meeples, right? Root had these custom different colored meeples with lovely line illustration that imparted a great degree of personality. Keep the heroes out, have the same kind of standard and every different faction you you can play as different dungeon monsters in the game. We played Louis played as the dragon. You played as giant rats and I played as Knowles. I was promised kobolds. It was a lie. I, I got over it. I'm getting over it. I should say I haven't quite got the sense of betrayal. It's deep. It, it It's just, it's, it's very hard anyway. And just the pieces alone are, are a joy. Thematically, it's a bit of a hash, because if you think about other Dungeon Keeper games, like, for example, Dungeon Lords, it actually works like a dungeon. You have heroes that proceed through rooms. Here, the heroes teleport in randomly, and there's this weird thing where they monomaniacally open chests, but they are so stupid that they try to open chests they can never in a million years open, and so you can just let some room off in the corner stall as things teleport in and stubbornly try to open a box that they couldn't open before, and they still try... Anyway, there's a lot going on that I could talk about that don't doesn't make much sense, and that also contributes to a general sense of awkwardness about how the enemy activation works. I didn't I hadn't quite fully internalized how enemies activated by the end of the first game, but that was partially because we were a little pressed for time, and you very deliberately, I think it was the right call, 
didn't give a full rules explanation, not a certainly comprehensive one, because it's a co-op. You get to do that kind of things, uh, thing with co-ops. And I think that's why this game gets away with it not being so much Dungeon Lords. It's a very low rules oh, sure. I, overhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the comparison was merely yes. in terms of how thematic it feels that heroes are trying to infiltrate your dungeon. And keep the heroes out, it doesn't feel like that at all. Not to me, anyway. I I agree, in a way. But I think the the art and the overall look of it sort of pulls it back in. 100%. I agree, I agree that, you know, the heroes just showing up out of nowhere doesn't quite make sense. But just sort of, you know, they have their intro ability and, and other things that happen. And the time it takes to play... I think this all sort of rounds off into a halfway decent game. I agree. Uh, and again, the problems I have with Keep the Heroes Out aren't going to keep me from playing it again. But in addition to that, the downtime is a little tricky. It's one of those things. Games of this nature, where there's a lot of spatial puzzling involved, or not spatial puzzling, but tactical positioning to, to be considered, on the face of it, it doesn't seem to make sense why turns would take long, but they do. It's like, okay, I'm going to move here. I'm going to activate this ability. Wait, wait. If I move this other way, I could activate this other ability first. Uh, let me do it that way. And as a result, it's not tedious, but it, it feels a little bit longer than it should for every hand. So that's one minor knock against it. And also, my, my principal objection, in, in addition to the heroes effectively teleporting in randomly, is the fact that the game doesn't have any kind of arc. At the end of every turn, you're going to be drawing a certain number of enemy cards, and the game ends with a whimper rather than any sort of build-up, if you're doing well. If you're not doing well, I imagine the game cascades into a series of awfulness. But if you're if you're winning the game, if you're keeping the heroes out, literally, then you know, you're just doing tedious management. As, com as compared to the classic model, of course, being Pandemic, or even games recently we've played of the Pandemic style, even games like Return of the Dark Tower, where you kind of have to engage in triage. Like, okay, we're going to let that fester for now because we don't have any other choice. And then suddenly it becomes a huge issue, and now you really have to deal with it. And and so you feel that sense of urgency. I never felt that sense of urgency. I never felt that sense of triage in the context of Keep the Heroes Out, precisely because it was always just these sort of stochastic individual elements. It was the first scenario. There are there are plenty of scenarios. 20, in fact. Sure. This is more of the way that the game's AI, for lack of a better term, works, True. right? There's not the level of geographic or escalating complexity that you would find in something like Pandemic. And I use the term complexity in terms of how the game reacts not in terms of rules complexity. And these are the kinds of things that could uh, that, that could differentiate a solid, competent game with charm, like Keep the Heroes Out, and the truly top-tier co-ops. That's all I'm saying. Agreed. And I wish that there had been some... Like Root is the conjunction of top-class gameplay and top-class components. Keep the Heroes Out is definitely close to being at that top tier, but, you know, there are a number of minor problems. I'll happily play it again. It's very cute. I'd like to try other, other factions. This is something that I might even suggest in the future. I would not be surprised, though, if for me it didn't have a particularly large amount of staying power. And that is Keep the Heroes Out. This was designed by uh, Louis Bre and uh, coincidentally by Bre Games. Fancy that. Got to try a game I'd been wanting to try for a while. Seems strange to say that, but I, it was since it was released this year. Airland and Sea, Spies, Lies, and Supplies. This is by John Perry. John Perry is the king of small box games. I have to say, the gauntlet's been thrown, Jim Felly. You have two amazing small box games, but two is not enough to make you the king yet. So, John Perry is the designer of, obviously, the original Airland and Sea, also of Scapegoat, as well as Spots. So, this is an expand alone to Airland and Sea. It is a two-player dueling card game that is vaguely reminiscent of Blue Moon, and anyone who knows my preferences knows that's high praise, because I think Blue Moon is the greatest two-player card game of all time. It is a game where you're playing card values to three different fronts, but there's an escalating series of consequences based on your loss. You're encouraged to concede early and lose a smaller amount of points if you think you're going to lose. And... On top of that, there is a large universe of special power effects. In fact, most of Airland and Sea, both the original and Spies, Lies, and Supplies, rests in leveraging some of these special powers. Yes, obviously, you would like to have higher value cards, but the lower value cards often have very, very powerful special abilities to compensate. So you can play it by itself, as we did. We haven't played Airland and Sea for a while, which I think is a shame, but generally we don't have a lot of time for two-player games, even quick ones like Airland and Sea. I was reminded of the fundamental clean brilliance of the design of Airland and Sea, and I was also very, very interested to see the new special abilities of Spies, Lies, and Supplies. There's also an epic mode where you combine the two games together and play five-sixths of the combined game 
all at once. There's a team mode. I would happily try any of these modes. I don't know if Airland, the Airland and Sea engine is primarily so good because of how quick and engaging it is. I would be interested to see if it would be equally engaging if you doubled the length. I'm somewhat optimistic because of my enthusiasm for the game. Team game, similarly. I don't know whether... I know there's enough game there to play the amount of cards played, but I don't know how much game there is if you double the, the scope of the game but then give, give everyone half as much to do, if that makes sense. So I'm curious to see all these things. I have a tremendous amount of faith in John Perry, and this is published by Arcane Wonders. Walker, what did you think about Spies, Lies, and Supplies? I enjoyed it. I very much like Airland and Sea. Has the same sort of feel. A little bit different powers, like yeah. you said. A little bit more of the manipulation of the cards. There's also this notion of supplies, which is a resource towards winning the conflict that is not based on cards, which was interesting. True. Yeah, you're putting a lot more tokens, I suppose. And I guess if war is not your sort of thing, they also have Airland and Sea Critters edition. Yeah, but the critters are still at war. They are at war, but they're not humans at war. <laughs> That's true. They're they are critters at war. It's true. I've seen the artwork for that. It's you know cutesy. I don't know if there's any intention for for a spies license supplies in the critters edition. Yeah, this notion of you know knowing when to pull out. It's not always like trying to eke out you know the very last second trying to win that full thing. It's like saying no, there's. Like, this is over, and I can pull out now and only give him, give them two points, or or maybe I'm holding back the big cards, and maybe I can take it over, but it's, you know, you got to make that call. Timing is very crucial, even just in terms of the different special abilities you have. You can look at your starting hand. It's one of those card games where you don't really draw more cards, and you have to figure, well... I'd like to get this out early because it's a good special ability, but on the other hand, my opponent probably has the ability to, to, to neutralize a couple of cards, so I don't want that to get out too early. It's a, it's just, it's, it's a tough balancing act. And I'm equally enthusiastic about two radically different styles of card design. One of them is just based on the pure mathematics of what's going on. This unsurprisingly is often characteristic of Reiner Knizia designs. Not so much Blue Moon. Blue Moon has a fair number of special abilities. I'm thinking more about things like Shot and Taught and things like Lost Cities. But I do also enjoy card games that are equally stripped down in terms of rule structure, but are about leveraging a a large number of different kinds of special abilities, which is definitely characteristic of the Airland and Sea series, as well as something else I'll be discussing later. So yes, highest possible recommendation, if you want a two-player quick card battling game that is incredibly simple to teach, I think I, I gave you a rules refresher in under two minutes, literally, then I cannot recommend Airland and Sea and Spies, Lies, and Supplies highly enough. Airland and Sea was a review copy, Spies, Lies, and Supplies was not. John Perry, Arcane Wonders. Also, minor note, they engage in the use of the Oxford comma, which we fully endorse here at So Very Wrong About Games. It's important to have commitments, Walker. It is. Standards matter, Mark. I'm glad you put it that way. Got uh, a couple of games I played. One that you played with me. I'm just going to compare them both together, sort of in 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 a way. Sure. Sky Mines by Alexander, Alexander Fister and Calamala by Fabio Lupiano. Comparing them in the way that it is, they are both very very tight. Where we talk about worker placement games taking worker spaces or. Or player interaction where there's sort of like a sidebar of cards. It's like, well, they took one. Well, I'm going to take this left-facing one that's, you know, kind of the same thing, but not so much. Not so much in these games. People are going to take actions that you need to do. And due to the timing of the game, it will sometimes take you right out of the running. If not for that turn, if not for the whole game. Why, so are, you, why are you looking at me when you're talking about nothing game taking right out of the running because this of This happened in... Just this happened to me in Sky Mines. Oh, okay. Well, we can compare our, pretty, our misfortunes. <laughs> yes. Pretty, pretty. And it was all uh, Warm Boy's fault. Um, Many things are. And it's, uh, Sky Mines is a great game. It, if you've played uh, uh, Mombasa. Mombasa or even Blackout Hong Kong, it has this card system where you're putting out uh, action cards and they're going to go into these piles above your board uh, at the end of the round. And then at the end of the round, you pick one of the piles and now they that comes back into your hand. So you're trying to seed your future turns. You're buying more cards. You are... Uh, there's all these different companies that you're expanding on the board, but they don't belong to you. They're just sort of this, you know, you're doing this multiplier, you're getting shares times their presence on the board. Uh, you're also trying to get helium, all these different places where you're going to get points. It is a fabulous game. I am looking forward to playing it more. 
I kind of enjoyed Mombasa. I'm interested in trying Sky Mines. You're right, I think, to emphasize the cleverness of the action selection mechanism. Fist, the, the, to me, the most Fisterian of all Fisterian elements is this idea of having action cards that move around a board in interesting ways. It's actually rather surprising to me that his most characteristic design, or at least his most famous design, which is to say Great Western Trail, kind of avoids that formula. But he's a talented designer, to be sure. And I definitely would prefer not mining uh, diamonds in 19th century Africa as a European company. That is for dang sure. It is true. This is published by Deep Print Games. And they so, it sort of doubles down on this planning ahead for future turns because you have this whole sort of computer, I think, I guess you could call it, a, you're putting in these chips and they all have these thresholds. And I love that system where you're not, you're not actually paying resources. You just have to have, like, I love games that do that sort of thing. You just have to have this many resources and then you get to go past this threshold. And then anyway, so you're putting in all these different computer chips and when you take the action, you can go as far as you can, as long as you meet all these thresholds. So you're trying to set up this complicated turn so you get the most out of it. But then, and, but then someone mean like Warm Boy might come along and throw a wrench in your system and ruin your whole game. Like you're having fun. <laughs> you're truly finally, you know. You had a brief moment of satisfaction exactly. with your life. And then it's stolen. That's a shame. It is. He doesn't sound like a nice man. That was Sky Mines. Or boy, even. Kalmala, Mark. How, how did we love Kalamala again? Ugh. It's a very, very tight Euro. The kind you don't often find in the past, say, five, even ten years. In a certain way, it feels like a throwback, kind of like Hansa Teutonica. I remember when Hansa Teutonica was released, like, this feels like it was designed ten years ago. And they meant that in the, the nicest possible way. Kalamala, I feel the same way. We, we were talking a lot about Kalamala recently because we played Ragusa again. And me especially, but you to a certain extent, were like, this is awfully reminiscent of and pointedly inferior to Kalamala, right? Somewhat interesting action selection, kind of sort of following off of other people's actions, uh, a minor bit of economy tacked onto it and timing issues. And just to talk about my own failings in Kalamala, I looked at Kalamala, I looked at the order of the scoring events because they're randomized before every game and I'm like, aha, the sailing actions, all the port cities are going to trigger early. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ramp up my boat production. I'm going to get in on all the early sailing cities before anyone else can. I'll score a lot of points early on in the game and laugh my way to victory. And by the time I'd finally gotten my act together to actually get things into the port cities, they'd already scored. And when you went early, it means early. Yeah, exactly. I did not get there early enough. Meanwhile, everyone else is very, very happy to score the points in the second half of the game, or indeed the second 66% of the game, in the landlocked cities. And I was just sitting there saying, but I've got all these boats. I could, I'm really good at shipping the boats. Lisbon, do you need any silk? Nah, we needed silk five minutes ago. Okay. London, London, we haven't needed silk for years. Yeah, that was my story of Kalamala. Still loved it, though. Kalamala is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's got a great... Uh, you're putting out these uh, discs, and when there's a certain number of discs, it's going to trigger scoring, and there's tons of scoring through the game. And like Mark says, you got to get your timing right. If you know something's coming up, you don't sort of set up for that. You get tokens in that scoring that turn, because by the time it comes around to you again... It has already scored. Well, that's, that's definitely true of the first few. I mean, it's not like it's a purely tactical game. During the early part of the game, it's mostly tactical. During the latter parts, you know, you can f frequently find yourself in a position whereby somebody else already has five cubes there. You're not going to be able to overcome them in a, in a single, in yes, a single fall swoop. You need, yes, you need, to, you need to know which ones you are not going to qualify for. Precisely. And, and work, look ahead and... and get in on the ones you can. It's about timing. It's about maximizing efficiency. You know, a lot of those great things that you would expect in a very competitive area majority game, which Kalamala absolutely is. And you get to upgrade your board. Very minor thing, but it's still something. Sure. Love everything about it. Yeah, there's the tiniest bit of infrastructure. Yes. And during the time it took me to set up the tiniest bit of infrastructure, the moment had already passed. I saw the moment of my brilliance flicker. I heard the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was too late. And who wrote that, Mark? <laughs> That's the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock. Very nice. Well, paraphrased anyway. And it's... Uh, I don't think the eternal footman watched my game of Kalamala, but... <laughs> the variability is amazing, too, because where you're putting these discs are in between two actions, and those tokens mix up every turn, and same thing with all of the... Scoring. Every game. Every game. Same thing with the scoring. Yeah, and the order of the scoring can matter so much... 
and the way the actions are laid out can matter so much. It's really, really well done. Kalamala is really excellent. And I've yet to see anyone who's played it not thoroughly enjoy it. Even people who normally don't like Euros. That's Kalamala by Fabio Lopiano. Published by ADC Blackfire Entertainment. Distributed in North America by Stronghold Games. It also has lovely little bits of laser cut buildings that you can acquire to turn it into a, a slightly deluxe version. That's true. But still in a very slim box. Love me some Kalamala. Played some more Resist by Trevor Benjamin, Roger Tankersley, and David Thompson. This is the same team that put out the most excellent hidden movement game, Sniper Elite, earlier this, this year. This is a solo game about the Spanish Maquis in the aftermath of the Second World War, fighting against the Franco regime, not fighting the Spanish Civil War. It's important to note. Apparently a lot of people have been getting, mixing that up because that's the conflict that they know about. This is the inaugural effort by Salt and Pepper Games, and I kind of foreshadowed this when talking about Spies, Lies, and Supplies, because Resist is also a, ga a game about managing special effects. You have your hand of Makizar, the Freedom Fighters, there's a whole bunch of locations with special abilities that you need to assault, and then when you do, you typically reveal a whole bunch of guards with special abilities. Some of which you can neutralize, some of which you can't. And so it's about managing the sea of, of different things that are going to trigger, and trying to make sure that you have the resources to avoid the worst of the effects, while still accomplishing your goal. And then knowing when it's time to call it a day, because you can stop after any assault and say, that's it. We're done. Resistance is over. Take all your stuff and go home or rather cease the reinvasion of Spain, which is kind of a grueling decision because not only do you have, I spoke about this before when I talked about resist, each card is a specific resistance fighter and you can either play them in their weaker version or their stronger version. And if you play them in their stronger version, they're never coming back to you because they're dead because they went out guns blazing and they get eliminated. Similarly, it's surprisingly gut-wrenching to decide to call the resistance over and say you're done because there's this temptation to, you know, liberate more of Spain. <laughs> so the amount of personality that you get out of a game of resist is truly impressive. I mean, it's hard to be impressed with the continued solo outputs of these designers, David Thompson especially, and yet they continue manage to surprise. And I have to say that the artwork in Resist does a lot towards conveying that personality. It was also pointed out to me by by the designer, actually, that the the overarching color palette of Resist, which is it's this very, very strong bande dessinée European style, and the color palette is that of the Spanish maquisar. And so it's 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 redolent in their colors that they themselves used. So this is a review copy we got from Salt and Pepper Games, and I am having a great time with Resist. It's very, very low barrier to entry, incredibly simple rules, very, very quick to pick up and play, but at the same time, you're always tempted to make it longer because you want to liberate more of Spain. <laughs> Surprising amount of personality and difficult, tense trade-offs to be made. Resist! So I already hinted at Tendaya. This is a new Kickstarter version that I just just came in. This is published by Red Mojo Games and designed by Lolo Gonzalez. And like I said, it, it's sort of like a, it's a cooperative game or you can play it two different ways. It's either competitively, but I think it's competitively co-op. <laughs> you're still fighting against the game, but you're getting points doing so. And whoever gets the most points, I guess would win as opposed to just everybody winning for surviving. So you have two gods. One is a water god and the other is the land god. And there's sort of a strategy phase. So you can see what they're going to do. At the end of the turn, those two gods are going to do something very nasty because there's eight volcanoes around this large map. And there's eight because that way you can roll a D8 mark and, and <laughs> random things will happen. Anyway, so those two gods are, do, are going to do something terrible. And you know what they're going to do and you know where it's going to happen. Not only that, the level of their anger is also going to key off of their two two other abilities. The water will do a t tsunami, will devastate somewhere, and the earth god will uh, erupt a, volca a volcano. So you know all four of these things that are going to happen. And on top of that, the conquistadors are coming. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let me get this right. So this is kind of like Spirit Island, but where the spirits are jerks. Well, that's the thing. They played off... As a, or I've heard it compared to Spirit Island, and there is a way you can math it out where you can, where you can let gods get to a certain degree of anger and know that you're going to be out of the way, but they will destroy the I see, I stores, see. right? So there, I, I can see that it did happen in one of in in the game that we played, but I don't know how often they will manifest itself 
continuously where you're going to be able to game that out. I see. So there's the big strategy phase, you know where it's coming. Uh, so you have to either manipulate your settlers around so they don't get destroyed or appease the gods so much that it, it's always going to be a, a ring around the, where the god is or a ring. Around. So it's always going to be some sort of devastation, but the more angry they are, it goes out and could set rings and it could like devastate the whole map. Tons of things going on, you know, getting resources. There's this whole list of things that you need to sacrifice to the gods in order to, you know, keep their, their anger down. The rule book is, is painful in so many ways. It's so fiddly, but I am so much looking forward to trying it again and hopefully showing it to you. Yeah, you, you remarked that you had a very good time playing it. I, I remember hearing from you when you first received the game, mostly complaints about the rule book and the amount of things going on. But then you played it and your tune immediately changed. So And the setup is not nothing either. <laughs> oh my lord. I'm, here, I'm trying to nudge you past what, what is it that you enjoy about the game so much, Walker? No, well, much like like the, you know, keep the heroes out. There's just that sort of computer, you know, you know exactly what the bad guys are going to do. You can sort of math it out and and figure out you know, a strategy and try to emphasize it. And you're also like upgrading your abilities. You're sort of getting inventions. You're, you, you have to feed all your settlers. Mark. <laughs> oh my Lord. So far you've adduced all positive aspects I, that also apply to spirit Island. I'm just pointing that out. I'm not, I'm not I trying know. to try to catch you in some sort of inconsistency. I'm just pointing that out. It's, it's not a very, it's very unlike spirit. Island. I, I believe that spirit Island is a somewhat singular experience. It's just, these are all very superficial comparisons, which are really beneath the stature of this August podcast. And so I'd like to apologize to our listeners for making such superficial comparisons. It sounds more like Mage Knight anyway. So we're going to talk about, in the feature game, we're going to talk about sort of flexibility. And there and and there's some flexibility in Tendaya. There's lots of games where you're going to be a dollar short or you just don't happen to have that one piece of wood and it will destroy your whole turn when sometimes it's very easy to get that that would, but you're just that one action short. So Tendaya has these things where you can just sacrifice people <laughs> to get the resources you need. So, you know, maybe you, you've captured some, some conquistadors or maybe you have too many people and you just needed that one extra, <laughs> that one extra, you know, pomegranate to sacrifice to the gods. Well, uh -huh. they'll, they'll take Charlie instead. <laughs> And in he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked him much anyway. I don't. And that is Tendaya. Uh, looking forward to trying it. So we returned to Oathsworn into the Deepwood. This is a review copy we got from Jamie Jolly at Shadowborn Games. And we've had a lot of questions about Oathsworn into the Deepwood. About half of the questions are uh, specific questions about the game. Should I buy the game? How does it compare to other games? And the other half of the questions are, can you please stop talking about Oathsworn? So... I will say the following, just in Precy. I think this was this was definitely the session where, for me, finally, everything really came together. The story was super compelling. I really felt a strong sense of urgency. I felt like I had enough information to make intelligent decisions, but at the same time, enough insecurity to feel tense about the trade-offs that I was engaging in as far as the story parts were, cons were considered. The new mechanisms introduced by the boss that we were fighting, because every encounter is an entirely new boss, were... Interesting, not nearly as Baroque as the previous one. The previous one, Encounter 2, was somewhat Baroque, but interesting. I didn't object to it. It wasn't cumbersome, but it was somewhat outré. Uh, and in this encounter, I felt that it was a great balance between groundedness and unexpected effects. And it was just, I think, really Oathsworn finally firing on all cylinders as far as the strengths are concerned. And at the end of the session, thinking, yeah, this was really good. Now, that having been said, there is one aspect of the scenario that might have bit deeper had we been playing with the full complement of four. I won't go into details, but as it was, we were able to navigate it just fine. So we are, and this is, I think, an indication of our estimation of the quality of the game. At least the three of us, and with any fourth that would happen to join us, we are going to continue our campaign of Oathsworn into the Deepwood. This is the first campaign game that we felt like doing that for since The King's Dilemma. That should tell you something. That, I think, it's by itself is an indication of our estimation of its quality. And I, I think of, of the three of us, I'm the most in favor of Oathsworn into the Deepwood. You still have some misgivings about the combat, I think, as does Huey. 
For those of you that are interested in hearing more about our campaign, uh, we are actually going to have a new Patreon-exclusive show about our Oathsworn campaign, talking about what our characters are doing, recapping the story, talking about how we fought the bosses, replete with spoilers, so only for people who either don't care about spoilers or who have already played it. And this is going to be launching soon. So if you want to hear more about Oathsworn of the Deepwood, you can. If you are tired of hearing us talk about it, you don't have to listen to us anymore. And speaking of spoilers, Mark, there's two two major red flags. And like you already mentioned one, it came in the story part. And I won't say what it was, but this has come up in other sort of campaign media talk where they say, I, you know, I really should say something about this part because it really affects the rest of the sort of scenario. You have this thing that happens and and there should be a warning out there because this thing is going to happen and maybe sure. it's going to it's tough it's 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 a tricky balancing act and the second one i don't think is a spoiler it's at the end of every fight every character has to ditch a piece of equipment that was used in that fight and by equipment i mean everyone's going to have armor and weapons and maybe a trinket and if you and at the end of the fight you have to throw one of these things away two if you got knocked out and two if you got knocked out so it's this constant cycle which could be a good thing or a bad thing i think maybe it's just so different than than other games that we've played like this is uh, maybe I, it seems a little more glaring than it yeah, actually is i but. share your misgivings it is but but so far the misgivings have largely been about potential there's the potential for us to get royally hosed like for example if one of the, one player really wants to play an archer and they just they they cannot get a new bow worst case scenario you can always throw money at the problem cuz when you buy items you can select from anything in the current item deck we do have enough money such that we could get un- unlucky several times in succession and be able to compensate for it so True, but I mean, in that in that case, it just sound, sounds like grind for the sake of grind. I, uh, well, no, it's not grind because it's not like we have to go through extra steps. No, but I mean, here's, just, some, here's some money, but now spend it so because you have to buy you know new equipment every turn. I hear you, but again, so far this is a concern we have more conceptually than anything else. We still are getting new toys to play with, even while getting rid of, of former stuff. So that is either an indication of one of two things: either number one, we've been unusually lucky, or number two, the game is actually well calibrated. Quite frankly, given how impressed I am with so many of the structural decisions, and I've talked about this ad nauseum, the ability to drop in and drop out, the ability to skip the story if you want to, the ability to skip the combat if you want to, this, that, and the other, how they've looked at at campaign structures, and I think done a better job than any campaign, bar none, at smoothing out some of the hurdles that a lot of these systems have. I am willing to bet at this point that that's because it's properly calibrated. Because we've seen the alternative sometimes. Sometimes you're just drowning in gear and you've got so many leftover stuff. It's like, oh yeah, I used that five levels ago. I'll just sell it for whatever. We still have excess gear that we can sell. It's just, I I, I don't want to speculate too much about the design goals that they were trying to accomplish with that, with that level of attrition. But to me, it has not felt like grindy attrition, although I share your concern that it might be. Anyway, look for your Patreon exclusive feeds for our a new show about Othorn Into the Deepwood. I will think of a title once I can think up of a stupid enough acronym for the title in the grand tradition of our previous shows, The Cure Files and The Hobo Chronicles. Those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, people know that I like Teotihuacan. It is getting a deluxe version. Which I don't think I'm even going to have to pay any money for because I have upgraded some of my components and it all seems to fit in one box. So depending on what is in it, I think I'm good. I'm not so <laughs> concerned about maybe a little bit of box lift. I'm okay with that. Uh, but anyway, coming up next year, there'll be a deluxe box. You'll be able to buy and set the, the wording seems as though there's going to be all sorts of different things, you know, that you don't have to get everything, but there will be a tier where you'll get the game and all of the expansions all at once. So if you don't have Teotihuacan, then this is your chance to get it all in one go. Retail or crowdfunding? Crowdfunding. Of course. On the topic of crowdfunding, this is the last week for the Mosaic Wars and Disasters expansion. Mosaic is a game that we reviewed a few weeks ago, and I am sufficiently pro-Mosaic that I have happily plunk down money for the expansion. Mosaic is interesting in that you can get it either in the retail version, which is surprisingly reasonably priced for the amount of stuff that you get into it, all the way to the Colossus edition, which is the edition that we have only by dint of the fact that it was the review copy we got, which, quite frankly, while we appreciate the additional elements, we could probably do without, <laughs> especially in our slight push towards minimalism compared to our previous attitudes of excess. But suffice to say, it's popped up in a lot of big box retail ch uh, chains. If you want to give Mosaic a try, you still have time. And the Wars and Disasters expansion is introducing, you know, what you would expect, more cards, more wonders, as well as somewhat of an overhaul to the military system, which a number of people found unsatisfying, but I found just fine. So we'll see how that shakes out. So that is the Mosaic Wars and Disasters expansion currently up on Kickstarter. And I, for one, would not be shocked if there were a late pledge available. So the designers of the Red Cathedral are bringing out a new game called The White Castle. And then in, in, in a couple of years, they'll be The color building system. Yes, and in a couple, couple years, they'll bring out another game called The Brown Outhouse. Now, <laughs> keep it classy, Walker. Come on. We don't need to resort to scatological uh, humor. I'm sure people would be upset if I didn't say something like that. <laughs> you got to stay on brand? Exactly. And it, it looks as though they're going to use a lot of the same sort of systems that everyone enjoyed in the Red Cathedral. I, for one, am looking forward to giving it a try because I do love me some Red Cathedral. Still haven't tried the Red Cathedral expansion, though. Neither have I. I yeah. do have it. It's sitting there. We have, there is a, because it is the end of the year. I guess it's not part of, I don't have this right now, but a lot of the games are coming out right now. Yes. Because it's, you know, everyone tries to load. Well, that, that and the, uh, the, the dam has kind of broke in terms of Kickstarter fulfillment. It's true. But this is where everyone wants their game to come out anyway. It's just before everyone does the end of the year lists and everyone knows, even though it shouldn't be that way, games that are most, you know, recent on mind are usually ones that get talked about the most in these lists. Well, we've already, uh, spoiler alert, we've already pretty much declared what our game of the year is. <laughs> I, I, well, once I get my hands on John Company second edition, that's the kind of the last big one that I, that I need to try, uh, before the end of the year. But yeah, I, I'm curious to try the, the, the Red Cathedral's expansion. The Red Cathedral was 
interesting, and I'd certainly be willing to try for further output uh, by there. But of course, the Red Cathedral was not about a cathedral, so I can only assume that their future building games will continue to lie about the nature of the edifice you're constructing. It could be true. It's a minor point, but it matters. Look, a cathedral is a specific kind of religious designate. When, when, when it's about anyway, when it's about religious buildings, you might want to be a little more precise. So an update from a, a news item from last week. If you are a patron of So Very Wrong About Games and you do not live in the United States of America and thus do not have access to a local target, you have been denied access to the new edition of Spirit Island called Horizons of Spirit Island. If you would like to achieve, uh, receive one of the copies that we are currently hoarding from our secret imported American stash, send me a message through Patreon for a chance to get a copy of Horizons of Spirit Island. Last week, I somewhat narrow-mindedly, no one's pointed this out, but I realize now that I was remiss. I just said Canadian patrons. If you're outside the United States, wherever you are, and you would be willing to subsidize shipping, we'll ship it to you for free if you're in Canada, but if you're in any other country, we will go halvesies on it. Let me know. You better be grateful. I had to duct tape these things to my body when I crossed the border. You have done nothing for Spirit Island ever, and you know it. So just send me a message through Patreon and tell me your spirit name. Mine, as a reminder, is Tedious Dilettante Deploys Doctrine. It definitely captures my essence. And we will be happy to consider you for a free copy of Horizons of Spirit Island. Yeah, this is not anything against Americans. You can just go to Target and get your own copy. Yeah, you have one on every block, much like Tim Hortons here in Canada. (laughs) What if Tim Hortons sold board games? The Tim Hortons board game. I can't wait. Uh, okay, loud and less enthused. <laughs> Slay the Spire, the board game, though, is up on Kickstarter right now. Slay the Spire was a, a great PC game, sort of card-based. Sort of. And this seems to be the very much the same thing, but just in, in, in board game form. So maybe the tedium is there. But like I've seen on many uh, message boards, the interest will be in how they've incorporated sort of a multiplayer feel to it. So we'll see. I am not pledging, but hopefully someone in the area will get it, and I will give it a try. Why are you not pledging, Walker? Because I think there's a lot to discuss here. I think we should dig into this topic a little bit. Uh, just for that reason, because I, I do play it a lot. It is one of my favorite games, and I think the computer takes care of a lot of the hassle and everything that's about it, and I don't know if there is... I don't think there's a multiplayer part to it. I don't know if that will add anything to that feeling that I get from Slay the Spire. Well, just thinking about other, addressing that issue first, thinking about other co-op games of that nature, I enjoy playing Xenoshift solo, I enjoy playing Spirit Island solo, but playing co-op, it adds considerably the ability to dovetail off of other people's effects, the ability to tank damage, the ability to specialize, the ability to coordinate, etc, etc. I think there's a there's somewhat a unique social joy to that, and as a, as a corollary to that, I've been seeing lots of comments on the internet about this this campaign. So much discussion has been generated by the Slay the Spire campaign. A lot of it focusing on a number of elements. One of them is the price. It is absolutely expensive. The cheapest pledge is 100 American dollars. That's a lot of money. I'm not in a position to speculate about the internal financials of any game company, regardless of what size. I would be, for one thing, shocked. Certainly if small independent publishers are licking their lips as they're gouging people for extra money. This is a licensed product from a small publisher. I'd be shocked if they're going to get rich off of this. So I don't think they're gouging anybody. Is it expensive? Yes. Are things very expensive? Absolutely. So there's that. The other thing that I've seen very frequently, and I'm glad you didn't invoke this, is why would I ever want to play this when I have the computer version? Well, come on, people. There <laughs> there are lots and lots of computer-based deck builders, and yet people still play in-person deck builders all the time. I'm not saying that you have to be okay with all of them. But just because there's 73,000 indie game derivatives of the deck building genre, this explosion that Slay the Spire introduced, I mean, just take your pick. There's there's dozens and dozens released practically every week on Steam of the latest deck building version. There's practically more deck builders on, on, on PC than there are in real life. But there are benefits, tactile, social, cognitive benefits, or at least differences in playing a physical board game than it is playing a PC game. Some people prefer PC adaptations and would never touch a board game in real life. Some people prefer the analog versions. I'm the one in the latter. I gave up playing deck builders on, on, on PC. They're not my thing. I don't enjoy them nearly as much as I do in person. So get so get off it. If you don't want to buy the thing, don't buy the thing. But don't pretend like there's no reason to want the in-person physical version of an analog equivalent. 
Okay, so that rants over. The other thing I would point out that you didn't mention is that this is designed by Gary Doretsky and going to be published by Contention Games. They of Imperium the Contention, the shockingly good sci-fi game that is vastly more entertaining than it has any right to be. And thus, I think they've earned a certain measure of credibility and a certain degree of wait-and-see optimism rather than merely turning your nose up at a $100 product merely because it's the adaptation of something you don't want to play on PC. And there's something to be said about having the actual physical cards in your hand i'd have to say absolutely like a, especially a, a a a game that you play a lot and you know on the on your computer and you actually get to touch the physical components there's something to that yeah the, the tactile appeal of board games is no joke it's one of the main things that i find very pleasant about a lot of the analog versions as opposed to the digital versions and besides one one last thing i will point out in moving from digital to analog, you're certainly not missing out on any graphical flourishes because, oh my goodness, Slay the Spire has zero animations or graphical effects of anything. You get to move the arrow and the, and the guy moves his arm. Anyway, I, I was reminded actually of a PSP game back in the day, uh, published over 15 years ago, called Metal Gear Acid. And I think, to the best of my understanding, it may have been the first sort of precursor progenerate of the electronic deck builder kind of thing because in Metal Gear Acid what you did was you built a deck of various things and you would play a card and then Solid Snake would go and do the thing and at the time everyone's like this is such a strange idea it kind of works and now I can't help but notice that it is in many ways sort of the default form of indie game on Steam now it's like what what real-time strategy games were for a while about 10 years ago so that's Slay the Spire (laughs) and lastly it's Mark Stephen Baker can do no wrong it's called Warriors of Kern. It's going to be a Dragonlance sort of war-based game. They're coming out with this whole package for sort of reissuing Dragonlance, and this board game is going to be part of it. It's by Stephen Baker and Rob Davio. Stephen Baker did all sorts of games workshop games uh, when they first came out. He even was in Heroescape as well. All sorts of things. This looks halfway interesting just because of the designers that are behind it. And the price isn't terrible. Right now it's being uh, pre-ordered for $80. There's not much information on it, unfortunately. <laughs> but soon, hopefully, because it's, seen, it's lumped in with all this other stuff, you know, it gets yeah. like a, a, a side paragraph. <laughs> so it doesn't even say how many players it is. <laughs> it's hard to find out. <laughs> Did but, you ever play the original Dragonlance board game? There was a few. There was a, a dragon one where you played dragons, sort of like a uh, sort of uh, X-wing type game. There was also so there's a game from 1998. It was published by TSR, and this is where you had you had an army of five dragons, and you had to fly in, get the dragon lance through a gate, and then fly out. And you ever play this? You, no. you track you track I've, altitude. I've and... seen it, and I think I had it, but never actually played it. Oh, I had it and played it back in the day. I was like ten. It wasn't bad. It's like Quidditch for uh, with dragons. And it wasn't great, but it was okay. So Warriors of Kern. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the main review, which is Flamecraft, a recently fulfilled Kickstarter game. Flamecraft was designed by Manny Vega and published by Cardboard Alchemy. As Walker said, after a successful Kickstarter, Manny Vega has previously contributed to a number of design projects, but his only lead design credit is of a game called Sparkle Kitty. I know very little about Sparkle Kitty. I didn't know that while I was studying for a philosophy degree later on that my professional life would rely on my possibly engaging in some degree of research about a product called Sparkle Kitty, but, you know, life leads us into strange alleyways and we wend our ways through various paths. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Flamecraft? So in Flamecraft, you're sitting together with your family, you're playing an inoffensive cube pusher, enjoying an excessively cute art game and grown with grown-worthy puns. <laughs> or you're sitting with your gaming friends, growing bored at yet another unoriginal, order-fulfillment <laughs> resource pusher where luck of the draw and table position becomes painfully important. So in, flame, <laughs> in Flamecraft... <laughs> Local dragons are becoming overpopulated and a menace. In an attempt to find a solution, you have decided the only course of action is to force them into free labor and put them to work in the local shops, exploiting their abilities for the profit of the local populace. I realize this may be an unhelpful or an unpopular position, Walker, 
but someone has to say it. These dragons have been freeloaders for far too long. Far too long. They come here. They consume our social services. They don't contribute to the local economy. I think it's high time that someone took a stand against these dragons. Just so. Put them to work. So, all right. I think it's important, as best as possible, to disclose biases, or at the very least, communicate where we're coming from when it comes time to review these games. There's a particular kind of mediocrity that inspires in me such rage and loathing that is beyond all proportions to the game's faults. Sometimes there are games that are so bad that I cannot help but laugh. The Starship Samurai is the is is your ideal paradigm of this. Then there are games that I think are so bad, but there are many ways that you can crawl into the different nooks and crannies of the mechanisms and demonstrate how this is a cautionary tale of how games ought never to be designed. Off the top of my head, I would list Twilight Imperium amongst those. And then there are games that are so aggressively bland and so incredibly inoffensive and offensive at the same time that I hate them so much and I dread them beyond all possible warrant. And they can inspire in me far more rage than any of these other games that I might rate a three on Board Game Geek ever would. But Thus, flame is Flamecraft. But what, what, why are you bringing this up in, 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 in Flamecraft? <laughs> uh, this this paradigm I would like to call the Champions of Midgard paradigm. Flamecraft is the is the is the kind of mediocre that has inspired rage more rage than since I last felt when talking about Champions of Midgard. And again, Champions of Midgard, I think I rate a six. Uh, not that everything is redundant to numbers. And I think Flamecraft, I rate a five. And now, when when I rate things, I rate things according to the Board Game Geek text prompts. And so five is, eh, I could be talked into it again, maybe, right? So, ah, Flamecraft. I think your, your sort of disjunction between the family environment and the gamer environment was perfect, but let me ask you the following question. Let me ask you seriously. We didn't have an opportunity to try to f- play Flamecraft with children. Did you Did you have an opportunity to play it in a sort of like family environment or with non-gamers or anything like that? I did not. I don't know how apropos Flamecraft is as a family game, to be frank. Because it's got some weird timing issues. It does, but I, I don't think the children will notice that. And I think I that they'll, so, they'll be enthralled with the art and the fact that they're getting these dragons to help them. And the dragons are, you know, doing, you know, their flamey, magical things. And I think they'll just be taken away with the whole feel of the game. <sighs> sure. If it, Okay, so if, as family game, you think it's sufficient for the kid to say... I want to go where Sparkles the Crystal Dragon is. I'm going to go to Sparkles the Crystal Dragon. And the adult has to literally walk them through everything that that entails in order. How we say everything, but it's not really that many things. It's like, get the resources that it says. Yeah. And you can show the, the child, you know, the pictures. They grab the resources that match the picture. And it's like, now you get to use one of the dragons that are there, and they'll pick the Sparkle Dragon. That's why they went there. So there's the resources, there's the effect of the dragon, you can play a dragon, and the shop effects. And to be frank, despite the fact that I played it a bunch of times over the course of the past two weeks, I can't even remember the order in which they happen. Every time, I have to consult the player aid. And I don't think it's because I'm mentally checked out. It's just because it's an arbitrary order. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, it's arranged in a shop. Because basically, when you're playing Flamecraft, you do one of two things. You're either satisfying a recipe, which has its own set of, of quirks, and we'll get to that in a minute. Or you're just visiting a shop for the bennies. If you're visiting a shop for the bennies, a whole bunch of things happen in order. And I can never remember what the order is. I have to check the player aid every time. It's just things like that make me question whether or not it's an apropos family game. The other thing that makes me question how apropos it is as a family game is because it's got a surprising number of moving parts, not to any serious effect, but a surprising number of things. The downtime is brutal, in my experience. It is. So you agree? I, I agree. But I played it with four once. It was torturous. I played it with three, much better. I played it with two, better than that, but still, woof. And you can sort of shave it, right? You can do it the same thing I do with, you know, catacombs. You can sort of, like, game master as well. You know, you can sort of start taking dread. You can... S- see that the children are getting anxious or, you know, not having fun. And so you can shave the cards off or you can just, you know, sort of bring it to a crescendo whenever you feel like. I guess I just, when I think of a good family game, I think of games where on your turn you do a thing and you do the thing and then the game moves on. I think of snappy pacing. I think of streamlined action selection mechanisms. I think of things like Reiner Knizia tile layers on the simpler end of the spectrum. I think of things like Blue Lagoon, bright and colorful, and on your turn, you put out a dude. It's like, oh, did you put out a dude on the thing of wood? Congratulations, you get the wood. All wood is good. 
you don't need to internalize the scoring conditions. The more wood you have, the better off you're doing. You don't need to understand the formula. And the kid isn't necessarily going to care about, you know, the strict number that gets applied to them. And if they do, they can internalize the scoring conditions. Stuff like that. I don't necessarily think of something like Flamecraft where it's like, okay, well, first you get the resources. Now, do you want to play one of the dragons? How does that work? Well, you take this dragon. Oh, you can't put that dragon there. That's, that's the wrong kind of slot. All right, moving on. Anyway. I suppose, but the kids get a pet dragon. They do. You're and right. I, and I think they'll enjoy that. Okay, so let's talk about the graphics. Let's talk about the presentation. I was promised a never-ending cavalcade of dragon puns. I, I think that delivers. Only about a third of the shops have good puns. The rest are just, you know, dragon bank or whatever. I was just, seriously, I was sold a bill of goods when approaching this game. And maybe this is the point where defenders of Flamecraft are going to identify it, you know, right there with the timestamp. This shows that Big D expected it to be a different kind of thing, and it's just because it wasn't that that he was disappointed and angry, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, you know, the the puns that are there are great. Draco Bell is a, is a solid, solid pun for a shop name. But I... I the proportion of puns to non-puns was was not solid. Oh, I know. I think that I think the ones that they were there are so good that it, it covers the rest. Fair enough. Fair enough. I will concede that. Nunya. Nunya beeswax. The well, best shop name of all time. <laughs> you're you're partial to that. You've used that joke a whole bunch I of have. times. I just I just think it's great. <laughs> and we were ta- we talked about nice simple actions, like the fact there's only two. Nice and simple. Let's talk about the uh, the second action now. The first action is you go to a place, you get the bennies, you play a dragon there, and you get stuff. Every, every act, dragon spot, only particular dragons be placed there, and when you place a dragon there, you get even more benefits. The other action you can do is, like you said, fill a recipe, and that makes a, a location even more powerful, more goods, and you get to fire all of the dragons that are there. Yeah, firing a dragon is triggering its ability. It's not sacking the dragon or <laughs> it's not yes, <laughs> giving them their walking papers. Yes, yes, not so. <laughs> and I will grant you that the art of the various dragons is, is relentlessly adorable. In point of fact, this is one of those occasions where I really think that the Kickstarter version has some virtues to it because the retail version has wooden meeples that seem to be in a radically different style from the rest of the game. They're fine, but they're not they're not very cute. They're, they they wouldn't even be cute enough to stand in a, in a game of, you know, root or keep the heroes out. Uh, the plastic miniature figures of Flamecraft are really the way the game is meant to be played. Uh, because the dragons are these kind of small, chubby, roundish things. And they all have, uh, there are a lot of puns as well in the context of, of the dragon names. And Pan the, the bread dragon. Pan the, pan the bread dragon. You know, multilingual pun is, is definitely a solid way to my heart. And uh, there's only six different types of dragon effects, but they dif- they gave them all different names and, and all that kind of stuff. In point of fact, it, it, there's an illusion of complexity by virtue of the fact that all the cards are distinct. It took, it took me a surprising amount of time to internalize. It was just, oh, there's just six different suits and they all do the same thing. That's right. Which was another another point I'm going to make later on. Is the fact, you know, that sort of standardizes. But yes. And imagine, can you imagine if all the dragons did something different? Oh, my goodness. Nightmarish. Yeah, I don't think that would be a good idea. And since we're talking about the, the components, let me just talk about this mat, this neoprene mat that is that is at least what eight feet long. It's not eight feet long. <laughs> <laughs> it is fairly long. It's oddly long. Do you know who I blame? I blame Jim Felly. Because Cosmic Frog was the first game I saw that had a box big enough for for a neoprene mat and the box wasn't huge. Because previously any game that had a box big enough for a neoprene mat, I'm thinking of things like Flick Wars, the massive, oddly shaped boxes, but Cosmic Frog, and later on, uh, the mirroring of Mary King, Jim Felly has found a way to make normal-sized boxes and fit neoprene mats now. Now suddenly, every game needs to have a neoprene mat, because it doesn't have to be an add-on that sits outside the game box. So I guess it has to be ridiculously, lo- ridiculously long, so it can fit into the box, I suppose. Yes, long and narrow, yeah. But still, it's it's awfully long. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is, it is I'm awfully saying, long. Yeah, like even on, even on a table... It, it's not that gaming, burdensome. Well, we have a gaming table, and it well, we have a up. gaming table with a computer on top for streaming it's, purposes. It's true. <laughs> and usually any number of detritus from your past rulebook readings. <laughs> I don't I don't think it's much of a table hog, suffice to say. Especially since you don't need anything in front of the players. It's all just the board. All you need in front of the players are the resources that they have. All right. 
uh, recipe fulfillment, Mark, you said you were going to say something. Let me say, add something quickly is the fact that there are two different decks. I went through them. Not much difference between the two decks. Yeah. I'm not understanding why you needed to have two decks. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of difference. Kickstarter. (laughs) Sure. I found it, and this is just an observation, this isn't a criticism or or even praise. Normally, in games of this level of complexity with recipe fulfillment, recipe fulfillment is how you win. Or at least how you're going to get the overwhelming majority of your points. Flamecraft is not that. Because frequently what happens, a not uncommon recipe might be, spend these six resources and a coin to get four points and some other bennies. Well, the coin's worth one point anyway. So you're gaining three points up on the bargain. And there are other building effects that might give you six points. There's a common type of dragon that that will give you two points for a single resource. You might even be able to fire three of those in a given turn. So theoretically, with the right combination of things, you might go to the building, get six points from that, fire the green dragon three times, and get six more points from those. So that's 12 points not uh, for at the cost of a small number of resources, and you haven't fulfilled a single recipe. The reason why, and this I think is, is where Flamecraft can settle into a vaguely entertaining rhythm, why it's not completely irredeemable. As you said, whenever you satisfy a recipe, you fire all the dragons at a location. Well, if a location is full of dragons, and if those dragons happen to give you resources, you might be in a position to just constantly be fulfilling recipes, using the goods you got from the prior recipe to fulfill the next recipe, and so on. And when you can get into that rhythm, I found it a vaguely satisfying kind of revenue generation, not entirely unlike how I've compared things like Beyond the Sun to, say, Space Station Phoenix, right? You don't have to pause and do nothing to get more resources, you can keep your forward momentum going. And so that I found a little bit interesting. It just it just required me to recalibrate my expectation about how valuable recipe fulfillment is, uh, certainly in isolation. It's not the kind of game where you spend a couple turns working up to a recipe, satisfy a recipe. Spend a few turns working up to a recipe, satisfy a recipe. If you do that, you're going too slow and you're not scoring points enough. It's true. And then there's the Ticket to Ride deck, which we will call Fancy Dragons, because that's what <laughs> Because called. that's what they're called? Interesting and, choice. And so it's very much like the Ticket to Ride deck, where you're drawing yeah. off the top, and you could fall into a ton of points, or you fall into something that you have no chance of getting whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, they are pretty much the antithesis of, you know, the satisfying revenue rhythm of planning your turns carefully and getting into a position where you can constantly be getting a points income. They are a series of semi-arbitrary windfalls that you may or may not deserve. <laughs> but they're fancy. <laughs> I I honestly I found them less fancy than the base dragons. Well it does give you it does give you direction. Make like many oh, games, sure. you know it you know, I was just commenting on their fancy. I don't know this isn't a reply to to what you had just said. I oh just, yeah why I, would you ever respond to something I yeah, no, yeah, I, no, I, no, I that no. would require me listening. Um yeah so you get one at the very beginning of the game so it sort of gives you a direction on on what to start off on. When your direction should have been towards the door or a different game. Yeah. Look, it's ultimately inoffensive. I, 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 The only extent to which it's inoffensive is just the bland sense of mediocrity I get from the actual design. And the fact that I find... It's charming when it seeks to be charming. and But much of the time, I feel like they, they kind of drop the ball. Like, not everything has, has Nunya Beeswax or Draco Bell. Sometimes it's just the bank. And the bank shows up, and it's like, oh, six points for going to the bank? Sure, why not? And there's no player interaction, and there's not a whole lot to, to do when it's not your turn, and the downtime's well, rough. Well, minor player interaction, right? When you go to it's a space. It's so negligible. It is so negligible. When you go, I just want to say, for the sake sure. of it. Sure. When you go to a space <laughs> where other dragons are, you all you have to give them all gifts. So it can be either coins, which is the sort of wild. Don't resource. give them coins. Give them something yeah, else. Don't give them coins or any other, <laughs> any one of the other resources of which you can only have. There is a limitation of what resources you can have. Yeah, seven, seven per of the seven six types. Of each. Yeah, so that's yeah. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, forty-two total resources. You have to be satisfied with that. No, and look frequently you're going to end up in positions where you have spare resources. So the, the the player interaction, when you give other people resources, either because you have to give them gifts, because you're visiting their space, or because you're triggering the dragon that gives you two points, this tends to exacerbate the downtime because it's a choice that you think you should make seriously. It's one resource. Like, there's always the impulse to look down what you have, look down at the recipes that are available to be fulfilled, scan everyone's available inventory. That's one of the reasons why I prefer Flamecraft 2 player. It breaks a lot of that out. You just say, oh, I have more metal than I need. Here you go. <laughs> 
Or, or you can't take more medals. So you have a medal that you're going to have to throw Precisely. Away anyway. It makes it nice and simple. Whereas it, it's one of those choices in games that I hate where it just introduces more downtime. It thinks You think this is something of consequence and really it's not. And so you go through these motions over and over and you go, th- you start distributing. You don't give gifts to this person because they're in the lead now. Or you give the gifts to that person because you haven't given them a gift yet and blah, blah, blah. Ugh. I just, I just, it's, I find it more tedious than I should. I, I, as I said right at the outset, I don't hate Flamecraft. I'm mo- in most circumstances, I would be utterly unmoved and just re- regard it as another derivative, uninspired sort of Euro that came out of Kickstarter. But for whatever reason, sometimes there's that precise note of mediocrity that makes me loathe something. And that's where I'm sitting at with Flamecraft. Agreed. I'm looking for the, looking forward to the expansion, which is Flamecraft Dragon Death Pit. <laughs> Ooh, a shocking change in art direction. I, I know, suspect. right? You know, they, you get to train them to fight each other. It's going to be great. Wow. That's some job retraining. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We do genuinely appreciate any time that you decide to waste listening to us blather. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. You will find all our information there. Also, generally speaking, at sowronggames.com, you'll find incredible resources information, information about the So Very Wrong About Games Expanded Universe, or Swagoo, links to merch, links to the dramatis personae of the various people that we refer to in the podcast. It's got a lot of interesting stuff there, if I do say so myself. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.